a uh, <clears throat> Sunday school teacher was explaining to her class the ABCs of forgiveness. Uh, those of you who grew up in Sunday school know the ABCs that when you sin, if you admit your sin, you believe in Jesus and confess him as your Lord and Savior, that God promises to forgive us. And uh, being a good teacher, she wanted to make sure that the, the kids were listening and tracking. And so uh, she asked, all right, children, what do we need to do before God can forgive us? And without missing a beat, little Johnny jumped up and enthusiastically exclaimed, sin! Which is true. If you don't sin, you don't even need forgiveness. This morning we're talking about forgiveness. The power of forgiveness. Because power is at the heart of forgiveness. The very need for forgiveness arises from some uh, misuse or even abuse of power by the offender. The ability to extend forgiveness requires a great deal of power from the offended, the power to, to pardon, to acquit. And the act of doing so, of, of forgiving, it confers a certain kind of power, the power to heal, the power to restore. And we see all of these dimensions of the power to forgive, uh, of forgiveness on display in our text for this morning, Genesis chapters 42 and 43. If you have your Bibles and want to turn there with me now, uh, if you don't have a Bible, I'd love to give you one of those at the info bar after the service today. These double doors again. You'll remember, if you've been with us through our study of Genesis, back in chapter 37, jo Joseph's jealous older brothers, they had abused their power. They were bigger and stronger than him. Physical power. So they beat him up, they threw him in prison, and they sold him as a slave. But now, by God's providence, the tables have turned. And Joseph is the one in the position of power. Not only the power now to forgive them or not, but as we're going to see, Joseph literally holds the power of life and death over his brothers. Joseph's life, you'll recall, has been a bit of a roller coaster of extreme ups and downs from a place of privilege and preeminence as his father Jacob's preferred son down to the depths of the pit, then elevated again to position of prestige in Potiphar's house before being plunged into prison. And as of last Sunday, Joseph has been promoted once again to prominence, this time in Pharaoh's palace. In chapter 41, Joseph was named vice Pharaoh. He's the number two in command in Egypt, the most powerful kingdom of the day, because Joseph was able to accurately interpret Pharaoh's dreams concerning this coming worldwide famine and thus helped save the Egyptians from starvation. But now other peoples have begun to go hungry and they are coming to Egypt and to Joseph for food. And one of those tribes just so happens to be Joseph's very own family, his father Jacob a.k.a. Israel and his 11 brothers. But before we pick up the story there, I want to quickly zoom out for a minute and, and give you a, a rubric for understanding not only this story, but really any passage of Scripture. Part of my job as pastor is not only to teach the Bible, 
but to teach you how to study the Bible for yourselves. That's my hope, my expectation for us as a church, as a pastor. And more importantly, it's God's hope and expectation for you, for us, that Sundays would serve as a catalyst for our personal time spent in God's word with him all throughout the week. And so to that end, I'm going to try and give you a, a tool that I hope you'll find helpful. Hopefully the slides will work for the second survey. Hey, we got it. All right. Uh, we, we, this, this slide was just too much, too awesome for, power, for the, the projector to handle in the first service and it crashed the whole system. So um, I think that we can view any passage of scripture from essentially four different angles. And the technical term uh, for this in biblical scholarship studies is hermeneutic an interpretive lens through which you view scripture. So on the left-hand side of um, the the graph, so to speak, here, there's a past dimension to any text of scripture. What did this passage mean to them, to its original audience in their historical context? We need to, to appreciate that and decipher that. But then there's also this present personal kind of dimension to the text as well. What does it mean to us today? The Bible was written by and to people who lived a long time ago, but it was written for everyone who has lived since then as well, for us. And then on the other axis, the vertical axis, um, every passage of Scripture can be uh, understood on the one hand practically. So there's a surface level kind of top surface level literal meaning to the text. But then you'll remember Jesus also claimed in Luke 24, 27, that all scripture ultimately points to him. And so if we dig a little deeper underneath on the bottom uh, of the chart here, there's a prophetic dimension to every text as well. In other words, how does this passage point us to Jesus? Okay, so each of these dimensions is important to appreciate when we study a passage of scripture. We, we always want to do four things when we study the Bible. Observation, interpretation, application, and transformation. So observation asks, what does the text say? And it's past practical context. Interpretation, what does it mean though? Because Jesus says, it's, it's all about me. So what is it really, and we got to interpret it. How does it point us to Jesus? Application, Based on that, let's make it personal now, how should I respond to this text? And finally, transformation. How does God want to use this passage to change me? And so here is your quick outline of chapters 42 and 43 for this morning through these four lenses. A past practical reading of this passage sees it merely as a story about Joseph learning to forgive his brothers. That's what the story is about, surface level. A past prophetic reading sees it a little deeper than that as a story really about that foreshadows Jesus, the better Joseph, who's going to offer us eternal forgiveness by saving us not just from hunger, but from hell. A personal practical reading that we're going to spend a lot of our time on this morning applying this text, how do we, how do we pull out principles to apply to our, our own lives, is going to read this story as a model of biblical forgiveness for you and me to follow. 
And lastly, a personal prophetic reading is going to remind us that try though we may, and we should, to follow this biblical example of forgiveness. We will inevitably fail like Joseph himself, mind you. Joseph, we're going to see, is not the paradigmatic example of how to forgive. He, he messes up. And for that reason, we need to be pointed back again to Jesus, to the one who is able to forgive even our unforgiveness. And so I'm going to try and trace all four of these hermeneutics in this story. We're going to try and cover a chapter and a half in the process. We're going to see six practical steps to forgiveness here. You'll see eight printed in your bulletins because I wanted to get all the way through chapter 43 today. Instead, we're going to go uh, all the way to chapter 45, God willing, next Sunday and cover the remaining four steps in forgiveness. But you're going to notice this morning that, that they alternate because forgiveness is a process and it's a, it's a two-way kind of street in relationship, right? And so they alternate these principles, steps between the forgiven and the forgiver, the offended and the offender. Because the reality is we have all been, maybe you this morning, find yourself on both sides of this forgiveness issue. Some of you come this morning, you've got someone, God is pulling on your heart, convicting you, you need to forgive this person. Some of you come this morning and you need to be forgiven. We've all been both the offended and the offender, maybe both this morning. But as we walk through these six practical how-to steps for both giving and receiving forgiveness, we need to make sure that we don't forget the deeper prophetic truth here that while, here's the main idea of the passage, while we ought to forgive and God is giving us steps to help us do so in his word this morning more than anything else we need to be forgiven even of our lack of forgiveness and God is offering us that this morning as well in his son Jesus and so let's pray as we ask God to illuminate our study of his word this morning father we come to you again asking you now to quiet our hearts we come into uh, this place, any number of different things stirring, wrestling, going on in our hearts. For some of us, it might be unresolved uh, relational damage. We might have someone this morning, as soon as we saw the title in the bulletin, forgiveness, that immediately a face came to mind someone that we've been holding on to that um, uh, resentment, bitterness um, for, for a long time, maybe years. For others, we feel the guilt of needing forgiveness. And we come this morning with heavy hearts, needing to hear the truth that regardless of whether we may ever receive that horizontal forgiveness that we, we need and we desire, we know that we can have the most important forgiveness of all, the forgiveness of our Heavenly Father. God, your word tells us that all sin ultimately is first and foremost against you, a holy, perfect God. We've all fallen short. We all deserve wrath judgment, condemnation, and yet this morning you offer us 
a different way, a different path, a path of forgiveness because of your son Jesus. Our sin can be crucified with him on his cross, put to death, removed as far from us as the east is from the west. God, I pray that you would convict us this morning of our need for forgiveness. Moreover, would you show us your faithfulness, your loving kindness to, in your mercy, forgive us in Jesus, that you really do stand, as we just sang, with open arms, ready to, to forgive us if we will but turn and come back home to you. <clears throat> we thank you for being such a good, kind, merciful, gracious, forgiving Father. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> Chapter 42 opens, verse 1, when Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you look at one another? <clears throat> he said, behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. Now, you and I know why they are passively sitting around looking at one another instead of doing something about their food shortage. Jacob, their father, doesn't know it. They lied to him 20 years ago to cover up Joseph's death, but we know it. His sons here aren't lazy. They were guilt-stricken. They knew that the only place to buy grain was Egypt. They had seen, undoubtedly, there must have been countless caravans traveling south from Canaan down to Egypt. But they also know that 20 years prior, they had sold their own brother into slavery, you guessed it, to caravanners traveling south from Canaan down to Egypt. And so now the very mention of Egypt, the very flow of traffic here causes that perpetual reminder and the pit in their stomach, guilt. But eventually they get hungry enough to face their guilt. And so in verse 3 we hear, so 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, his younger brother, with his older brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. You remember Rachel was Jacob's favorite wife, four wives. Rachel's oldest son, therefore, Joseph, had been Jacob's favorite son until he thinks that Joseph was killed. And now... Rachel's other son, younger brother Benjamin, is the favorite. And so here we get our first prophetic prefiguring of the gospel story. Not only is Jesus the better Joseph, but God the Father is the better Jacob. He is our Father who did not withhold his beloved Son, but who willingly gave him up, sent him for our salvation. That's the gospel. But the first step of forgiveness here, to go back above the line to the practical, is that if you're the offender in a given situation, like Joseph's 10 older brothers here, is number one, you need to go work it out. Go work it out. Now, the older brothers, they don't know that that's what they're about to do by heading to Egypt. Egypt is a big country. They couldn't have possibly known that Joseph is still alive or that they'd face him again, much less beg for food personally from him. And notice also they didn't voluntarily go to Egypt to work things out with Joseph. They had to be told to go by their father. And that's often how it is with us too, isn't it? 
my son, Elijah, he doesn't instinctively go and, and reconcile and hug and make up with his sister after he, he hits her and she's crying. He has to be told. We have to make him go and seek forgiveness. But you and I, as much as we like to think, we're older, mature. We're not as different from our kids as we think we are. I, I can, can't even tell you how many times my wife has had to tell me, I think you need to go apologize to that person. Or even more commonly, talking with a friend, they have to encourage me, I think you need to apologize to your wife. But one way or the other, as Christians, when we are in the wrong, we are called to go to the person that we have wronged and seek to work it out. Jesus said you do that before you even come to church, before you even come to worship. Apologizing is that important. He said if you're offering your gift at the altar, in other words, your sacrifice in the temple, or modern day equivalent, your worship in the Lord's house. And there you remember that your brother has something against you. You've sinned. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come. Now, that said, it's an important thing to point out. If you are the offended party in a ruptured relationship, keep in mind, you can and should still forgive even if the, the other person doesn't ask for it. Like, I don't know if my father has ever really apologized to my mother for, for cheating on her, leaving her 25 years ago, but she says that she has forgiven him in her heart nevertheless, and we should as believers, not only because Christ commands us to, 70 times, seven times, just never stop forgiving, it's, of course, easier said than done. But it's, it's, it's what God wants for us because it's good for us. It's good for us. They say that harboring resentment is like drinking poison. You think you're doing harm to some, You're only hurting yourself. Right? And so we seek to forgive and we seek to be forgiven. Number two, now, if other side... If you are the person who has been offended, which we all have at some point in time, here's, here's the next step. When your offender comes to you wanting to make things right, the first thing you do is you listen. You need to listen to them. Joseph, I told you, he's not the poster boy for forgiveness. Joseph doesn't listen. Makes that clear. Verse 6, now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and they bowed themselves before him. Remember Joseph's dream is now coming to fruition from chapter 37. You're all going to bow down to me. Verse 7, jo Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from? He said, and they said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not rec recognize him. And Joseph remembered then the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you are spies. You've come to see the nakedness of the land, our vulnerability. You're going to rob our food. They said to him, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Joseph must have been fighting hard to hold back a big laugh at that one. 
as honest, upstanding brothers who sold him into slavery. Your servants have never been spies, they say. He said to them, no, it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And they said, we, your servants, were 12 brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. At this point, Joseph must have been fighting hard to hold back either tears. They've completely written them out of the family equation. Maybe he wants revenge, wants to rub it in their face. Are you sure one is no more? I'm here, Joseph. But instead, verse 14, Joseph said to them, it is as I said to you, you are spies. He decides that he's going to rough them up a little bit before his big reveal. He's going to make them sweat for all that they've put him through for the last 20 years. It makes sense. Can you blame Joseph? He refuses to listen to them. Three times they try and tell him who they are, what they came to Egypt for, and three times Joseph ignores them. And that's our natural instinct too, isn't it? Deep down, when you have been wronged, even if the person comes to you confessing, apologizing, don't you sometimes want to rub their nose in it a little bit? Don't you want to make them sweat a little bit? Make them beg for it? Because now the tables have been turned right? You're the one in the position of power now. They need something from you now. Forgiveness. You have the power to either pardon or to refuse them acquittal, leave them in their guilty state. And sometimes we get so hurt that we can't or we won't let ourselves believe that they're truly sorry. I hear you saying you're sorry, but I don't think you really mean it. You know what? Let's just give it a couple days, maybe a couple weeks. See if you change. Here's some hoops to jump through. And if your actions back up your apology, then then I'll decide maybe to forgive you. That's exactly what Joseph does here, verse 15. By this you shall be tested. Here's some hoops to jump through. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother. He wants to see Benjamin. While you remain confined, the rest of you, the other nine, that your words may be tested whether there is truth in you or else by the life of Pharaoh, you surely are spies. I want you to prove that you mean it. I want to rub your noses in it. But listen, true forgiveness makes no demands. That's 2B. Number 2B. Not like to be or not to be. It's 2B. Uh, True forgiveness. It, It makes no demands. It isn't structured as a hypothetical, conditional, if then statement. If you do this, then maybe I'll forgive you. It's not how true forgiveness works. Why? Because that's not how Jesus forgives us. Jesus didn't say you know what, I'll make you a deal. I'll head up to the cross reluctantly. But first, you've got to really beg for it. I mean, I'm going to rub your nose. I want to see that you really feel the weight of your sin and you know how much you need me on that cross for you. No. The Bible says while we were yet sinners, while we didn't even know we needed him on the cross for us, Christ died for us. 
And so 1 Corinthians 13.5 says, love does not insist on its own way. In other words, it makes no demands. It attaches no strings. If you do this, then I'll do that. Now, it needs to be said, reconciliation is a different thing. Reconciliation, in the cases when it's even possible, might very well require setting new boundaries for a potential relationship if it's going to go forward. Forgiveness is not the same thing as reconciliation. If you sin against me badly enough, let's say you seriously hurt, harm my kids, I may, I may, with God's help, in time, come to be able to forgive you. But that doesn't mean I'm ever letting you around my kids again, right? I can forgive you, but I'm not stupid. It doesn't even mean that you and I are necessarily going to be able to have a relationship going forward. We may or may not. Reconciliation isn't always wise. An abused woman can forgive her abusive, unrepentant husband and still leave him. Sometimes reconciliation isn't even possible. You might forgive someone who wronged you years ago. Some of you have people you can think of wronged you years ago. They've long since died. They're deceased. You might still need to forgive them. You won't be reconciled to them, at least not on this side of eternity, but forgiveness is still so important. And by the way, typically, as far as I can tell, the harder it is to forgive, typically the more important it is to forgive. Last word on point number two here. Listen, make no demands, and soften your heart. Soften your heart. On this point, Joseph does get it right. Verse 17, we hear he put them all together in custody for three days. Cools down. On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, then let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody and let the rest of you go and carry grain for the famine to your households and bring your youngest brother to me so that your words can be verified and you shall not die. In verse 16, before this, Joseph was going to keep nine of them locked up while one returned home for Benjamin, didn't say anything about sending them with grain either, but three days later now he allows nine of them to return home while detaining only one of them as collateral of sort. He still hasn't removed all the strings, all the hoops. He hasn't re relinquished all of his, his power and achieved this kind of vulnerability required of truly, fully forgiving someone, but he is at least softening. Joseph is trending in the direction of forgiveness now. Maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you feel this morning like I, I just cannot fully forgive that person for what they did to me yet. Pastor, I hear what you're saying. I know I'm supposed to forgive them. I, I just can't do it right now. I want to encourage you. Forgiveness is for sure, it's a process Extreme example, if you murdered my family this afternoon, I'm probably not forgiving you by bedtime. You hear those stories, those miraculous stories of family members who extend forgiveness even to their loved one's murderers at his sentencing, at his execution. But that's years later. Right? I mean, that, that, that is sometimes decades. It's a process. 
There's no set timeline for this kind of thing. It takes time to forgive. But let me ask you, lovingly ask you, encourage you, are you trending in the right direction? Is your heart softening toward your transgressor? Number three, if you are the offender, back on the other side, we're alternating. If you're the, the person who needs forgiveness, second thing is you need to go to them. Secondly, you need to feel remorse. Number three, you need to feel remorse. Verse 21, then they said to one another, Joseph's brothers from their shared prison cell, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, did I not tell you not to sin against the boy, but you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They still don't know that the guy that they're talking to is Joseph. And yet, you know, they, they haven't gone a day for the last 20 years without thinking about it. Their guilt is so overwhelming. They have so much guilt built up from this one incident two decades ago that they trace a direct line here between their having sold their brother into slavery and their current predicament. They are remorseful. Remorse is deep and painful regret for wrongdoing. And that is actually a really good place to be if you've wronged someone. It doesn't feel good, but it is good. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. The world says you need to avoid feeling remorse at all costs. The world elects leaders who double down when they're caught in a transgression, who refuse to apologize because they see it as a sign of weakness and we like strong leaders. But King Jesus isn't interested in strong leaders. He's looking for weak followers, for the humble, for the meek, for those who understand that godly remorse leads us to repentance, which leads Jesus to salvation. Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need the doctor, it's the sick. The truth is we're all sick. We, don't, we just aren't all strong enough to admit it. But Jesus says, I came for the lost, for the sinners, for the desperate, the broken, if you're here this morning and you think you've got it all figured out, all put together, and you don't need me, then guess what? I've got nothing to offer you. One other note here. I find it very interesting that the older brothers come to Joseph before they feel remorse. Notice the orders of points number one and three. It's not like they feel guilty and then they set out on a journey to Egypt to find their long-lost brother. And I just wonder if the order there is God's sovereign orchestration of this sequence of events as a model for you and me. That we are not supposed to wait until we feel sorry to go and work things out. I don't know about you, I'm going to say conservatively, for me, speaking personally, at least half of the conversations that end in me apologizing to my wife 
Don't start with me setting out to go apologize to her. I am such a sinner that I can go into conversations after I've screwed up convincing myself that I'm in the right and she owes me an apology. And that's why I'm going. Like, hey, you got anything you want to say to me? Sometimes the important thing is simply that I, I go into the conversation. That I don't wait until I feel bad enough because I know that there is a rift that's been caused in our relationship and I, I do love her enough that I don't like for there to be conflict between us. I genuinely want things to be right again and I'm at least willing to pay her the respect of listening to her, making no demands, and then, and then trying to pray and allow God to soften my heart in the process and eventually trust that, that if I'm the one in the wrong and I need to apologize, that's going to come out in our conversation and I'm going to feel remorse in time in the process. But you go. You go. Try and make things right, even if you don't feel like it. Number four, if your offender has come to you and you've listened to them, relinquished your demands of them, softened your heart toward them, and especially when you see they're truly remorseful, then number four, you give them grace. As the offended party, you give them grace. Verse 23, the brothers did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an, an interpreter between them. They're speaking in Hebrew to one another. Joseph was raised in Canaan with his family for 17 years. He can understand everything they're saying, but by this time, he's also picked up Egyptian, and so he's speaking through the interpreter back to them in Egyptian. They don't know, you know, the whole dynamic here. Verse 24, then he turned to them, away from them, sorry, and he wept, and he returned to them and spoke to them, and he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. Grace is getting a good gift that you don't deserve. That's the definition of grace. Joseph's older brothers, every last one of them, deserves to rot in the prison cell for what they did to him, or even worse. But instead, he gives them food, money, travel supplies. Even Joseph weeping over them proves that he still desires a relationship with them even though they don't deserve it. They don't deserve to be in his life, vice versa. Forgiveness itself is a kind of grace. By definition, forgiveness is good, and by definition, it isn't deserved. Some people have this misconception that forgiveness means you have to bring yourself to the point where you say, eh, it wasn't that big of a deal. It's all right. My mom leaving me, my spouse cheating on me, my dad beating on me. It's all right. I just need to forgive them. Not a big deal. But forgiveness actually requires us to recognize, you know what? It's not all right. It was a big deal. If it was all right, there'd be nothing to forgive. <laughs> forgiveness wouldn't be necessary if it wasn't, you know, anything to worry about. And so by definition, forgiveness is always 
undeserved, even in the most seemingly benign cases. Polly and I were recently doing some premarital counseling with a couple who shall remain anonymous. And I asked them last meeting, what's the biggest fight you've ever had? And bless their hearts, they are both just way too sweet to have ever had a real fight yet. Uh, I said, just wait, marriage has a way of bringing out the not-so-sweet parts in all of us. But they recalled for us the time when he booked a spring break trip with his buddies over her 21st birthday. She wanted to spend her birthday with him. She had told him that. He had agreed to wait to leave for the trip until after her party. But then in the excitement of booking the tickets with his friends, he forgot. Now, when he realized his mistake and he went to her to apologize, her feelings had been rightfully hurt. It would have been dishonest for her to pretend to shrug it off like it was no big deal. It was a big deal to her at the time. Now, again, maybe years from now into marriage, you'd be like, remember when that's what we fought about? But, but in the moment, it felt like a big deal. And therefore, what he deserved was to feel the full weight of what he had done to hurt her. And she could have chosen to do that, to rub his nose in it. But instead, forgiveness extends grace. Undeserved kindness. You deserve the prison but instead, I'm going to give you provisions. You deserve the doghouse that really upset me, but instead, I'm going to choose to let you back into my good graces. That's the power of forgiveness. Number five, if you have wronged someone, you need to process your guilt, take responsibility, and make amends. First thing there, process your guilt. We're not going to read all 13 verses here, but here's a summary for you. You remember the remorse that the brothers were feeling back in point number three? When you don't deal with your remorse, your guilt, you let it sit there and marinate, your, your deep regret for wrongdoing, guess what chronic guilt will do to grace? Guilt turns what should be a gift into a grief. And sure enough, when Joseph's brothers here discover his gift, the extra money he slipped in their saddlebags, verse 28, their hearts failed them, and they turned trembling to one another, saying, what is this that God has done to us? Guilt will turn, you know, a gift, money in my saddlebag. It'll turn what should be, what has God done for us, into, oh no. What has God done to me? I know that God can't possibly be rewarding me for the wrongs that I've committed, and so this must be some kind of punishment in disguise. The brothers are afraid that the vice pharaoh is going to think that they stole this money. And so they tell this whole story to their father Jacob, and he says, well, sorry, but you're not taking Benjamin. He says, Benjamin's all I've got left. Rachel is dead, my favorite wife. Joseph is dead, my favorite son. He thinks he's dead. Benjamin is all I've got left. Imagine being one of the ten older brothers. Hello. <laughs> Reuben, Jacob's oldest, the firstborn, who, who you remember slept with his stepmom, one of Jacob's other wives, and fell out of Jacob's good graces, never 
experienced forgiveness, still hasn't dealt with his guilt from that incident. Reuben says, Dad, don't worry. I'll, be I'll bring Benjamin home safely to you, to which Jacob essentially replies at the end of chapter 42, Reuben, I don't trust you and I don't love you. That's basically what he says. And so there are just layers and layers here of unresolved family guilt. And we all know what they say, right? Time heals all wounds. But I'm here to tell you, they, whoever they are, don't know what they are talking about. Because if you don't address those wounds, all that time is going to do is allow them to fester, to grow gangrene. And the same holds true when you've wounded someone else. You don't want to let that remain, this open, oozing laceration. And so confession and repentance, godly grief, remorse, they're like, a balm and a bandage for relational wounds. So, process your guilt. Secondly, we need to take responsibility for our actions. Both our past wrongdoings, own up to it, I messed up, as well as your present decision to do whatever you can to make things right. Now we're into chapter 43, and we hear verse 1. Now the famine was still severe in the land, and when they had eaten all the grain that they had brought down from Egypt, their father said to them, go again, buy us a little more food. Now we don't know exactly how much time has passed here. It could have been months, it could have been years. But their unresolved guilt, the refusal to deal with it, has left their poor brother Simeon just rotting away in the prison cell in Egypt, and it's only when Jacob selfishly starts to go hungry again that he, he seems to notice or care. Yeah, we should probably get some more food. I guess check on Simeon while you're there. But, but verse 3, Judah says to him, Dad, the man solemnly warned us, saying, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you will send our brother with us, then we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him we will not go down. So Judah finally stands up to his father Jacob and says, no dad, we're not just going to keep ignoring the problem, putting a band-aid on an open gaping wound. We need to address this. To which Jacob replies with more complaining and whining. But eventually Judah wins him over by taking responsibility. He says, Dad, send the boy with me and we will arise and go that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. They're all fathers by this point, other than Benjamin. I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand you shall require him if I do not bring him back to you and set him before you. This is Benjamin. Then let me, Judah, bear the blame forever. So finally, Jacob says, I trust you, Judah. Not, not Reuben, but I trust you. Because he takes responsibility. It takes a big person to admit, I messed up, but I want to make it right. I'm coming to you. I'm asking for your forgiveness. Proverbs 28, 13 says, whoever conceals his transgression, tries to sweep it under the rug, will not prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes them who doesn't just put a band-aid on it, but who cleans it. It's going to hurt to clean that wound and 
stitches hurt, but who, who deals with it, confesses and forsakes his transgression, will obtain mercy. You don't, you don't fix a problem by pretending it doesn't exist. You've got to take responsibility. And specifically, and thirdly here, the way you do that, part of the way you do that is by making amends. So process guilt, take responsibility, and make amends. Verse 11, then their father Israel said to them, if it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags and carry a present down to the man, a little balm, a little honey, some gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts, almonds, Take double the money with you, carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take also your brother Benjamin. So Jacob realizes, look, if I do nothing, we're going to die of starvation anyway. I might as well roll the dice and try sending Benjamin and see what happens. But I'm not going to send him empty-handed. You've got to make it right. Jacob had sent gifts to his own brother Esau, Back in chapter 32, you remember, after he anticipated a, a rather conflictual reunion with Esau on his way home to the promised land, made amends. And here, once again, Jacob sends gifts to try and make amends. An amend is more than an apology. Anyone can say, I'm sorry. Talk is cheap. What are you willing to do tangibly to try and rectify the wrongdoing, to win back the person's trust? That's the thing. Forgiveness can't be earned. It has to be freely given. But trust is different. You've got to earn someone's trust. And when you break it, sometimes you've got to work twice as hard to make amends and re-earn it. And I wish I had more time to elaborate on this whole making amends thing. If you need, if you're that person who needs someone else's forgiveness, this morning I encourage you to go home this afternoon, do some homework on your own. Step number nine, the 12-step recovery process. Make amends. We seek to make amends. That's where you start. And in conclusion this morning, number six, when you see your offender working through their guilt, taking responsibility, making amends with you. How ought we to respond as believers, those who have been wronged? We give more grace. You, you give even more grace. Jacob sent them home with grain and money already. Now they come back trying to pay it back and make amends and, and make, it, make, make it whole again. But verse 16, the brothers, they returned to Egypt. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, bring the men into the house and slaughter an animal and make ready, for the men are to dine with me at noon. He just gives them even more undeserved favor and blessing. But here's the most amazing part. We're going to continue the rest of the story next week. And we're going to see Joseph still hasn't fully forgiven them yet. Yes, he invites them to lunch with him, but he still makes them sit at a separate table. It's like a visible reminder of the power differential that still exists between him and them. 
because Joseph isn't quite ready yet to lay down his power over them, to exercise instead the power to forgive them. But here's where we end and bring it back full circle to Jesus, to the better Joseph. Do you know that one day, all those of us who belong to Christ, his adopted brothers and sisters, he is going to invite us to dine with him one day at the wedding feast of the Lamb in heaven for the rest of eternity. It's going to be one nonstop dinner party. And guess what? Jesus isn't going to relegate you to the kids' table. Any of y'all grow up with that, the kids' table? Like you knew when you had made it as a kid, when you graduated finally to the big table with the important people, right? Joseph relegates his older brothers now to the kids' table. Y'all aren't, we're, okay, I'll let you eat with me, but we're not sitting at the same table yet. But look, not Jesus. Jesus doesn't relegate you to the kids' table. He says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me at the very same table. And he can say that because of the forgiveness that he now offers you through his death and resurrection. And the only question left for you and me this morning is, will we accept that invitation to eat with him? Let's pray.